So I want to talk about the Trinity. It's not a word that's actually found in Scripture, and that's okay. It's a word we use to describe a concept that we see in the Scripture. When we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Trying to fully understand this is very difficult. I've heard lots of examples. Some have talked about water in its three different forms. It's liquid, it's a gas, and it's a solid, but it's still water. I've heard some talk about uh, the example of an egg. You have the shell and the yolk and so forth. Those are great examples for young children, but when I talk about getting into the deep, we need to get deeper into that because those examples aren't really adequate to describe what the Trinity actually is, what it means, how it functions. So we need to move beyond this. To try and understand maybe how difficult it is to really understand what we're talking about, try and imagine, if you can, just for a minute, that you can't see depth. There is no third dimension, if you will. You can only see left, right, up, and down. You can't see depth. And then try to explain to someone who can't see depth what a third dimension is like. You can talk about it all day long, but until you can actually see depth, it's really hard to understand that there's something beyond just two dimensions. And so trying to explain the Trinity is trying to explain to someone who can only see two dimensions that there's a third dimension. It's very, very challenging for us to do. But that doesn't give us a free pass to just ignore it or pretend like it's not there. So what I want to do today is kind of run down some of the things that the scriptures teach us about the Trinity. So in the scripture, we see that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All of these are one God. I'll try to explain that here in just a minute. But they're all seen in the male form as a spirit. They are all omnipresent, which means present everywhere. They are omniscient, which means they know everything. They're omnipotent, which means all-powerful. They're eternal, immutable, holy, just, and loving. But they also have individual characteristics as well. Ultimately, as I said, this is really an incomprehensible topic, but I want us to take an effort to look at it. As I mentioned, the word Trinity is not found in the Scripture, and that's okay. Again, we have several words that we use to describe concepts to make them easier. So let's start with maybe the beginning. There is one God. One. It's not a contradiction to what I just said about God being in three parts. There is one God. The scriptures repeatedly tell us that. I'm going to go through a lot of scriptures. So if you're taking notes, you probably will not have time to flip to those references. You can just jot them down. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 1 Corinthians 8 and 4 says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. 
1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. And so as we talk about the three parts of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we should not and cannot lose track of the idea that God is simply one person. We do not worship multiple gods. We are worshiping one God who we experience in three persons. So to provide some scriptural support for this, we can go back to the Old Testament and we see this word for God, Elohim. Now I've taught on this before. It's been years now probably since I looked at it. In our English, we really translate God one of a couple of ways. We'll say God or Lord. And in the Hebrew scriptures and even in the Greek, there's multiple names of God and they all have significance. They all have importance. And so sometimes when we read the English translation of the scripture, we miss the importance behind the different names and words for God. And you can get a scripture that will input the original Hebrew word every time the word God is used and you can see the strength and meaning behind it. But what we see, especially here, uh, in Genesis, we see this peculiar place in Genesis 1 and 26. And I remember as a young person thinking this was interesting. 1 and 26 is a story of creation. And it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And what always caught my attention when I was younger was the plural nature of this. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And if you go back and look at that word, then God said, that's the word Elohim, which is plural in the Hebrew, which means multiple. And so again, we are not saying that there are multiple gods that we worship. There is one God, but he is in three parts, three individual uh, persons, if you will. We worship him as one God, but there are multiple parts to him. We see that in this scripture here. We also see this in the baptism of Jesus Christ. If you want to turn there, we'll uh, pause there for just a minute. Matthew 3. Matthew chapter 3. 16 and 17. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the waters, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. And here we see an example within two verses of this idea that there is God in three parts. We see Jesus Christ, who is come from heaven and is present physically at this time in the world, one part of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit coming down to descend on him, the second part. And then God the Father giving a verbal proclamation saying he is well pleased with his son. And so in these two verses, we see all three parts of the Godhead functioning together for a specific purpose. <coughs> and this is not the only time that we see this. 2 Corinthians 13 and 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. 
And so here again in one verse, we see present all three forms of God. Hebrews 9 and 14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God? And so there again, we see the concept of all three existing at the same time, but serving different functions. Members of the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are distinguished from one another. They don't do the exact same things, yet they are all still one God. John 14 and 16 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, these are the words of Jesus Christ, who is talking about how after he leaves, he is sending the Holy Spirit to live inside of those who are believers. So Jesus Christ clearly had a specific and distinguishing purpose for his life. And the Holy Spirit has a distinct, different purpose and different way of doing things. He is called the helper or the comforter in other translations and in other places. Now, each member, as I said, of the Trinity is, in fact, God. The Father is called God, Romans 1 and 7 says this, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that God the Father is in fact God. You with me? And then we also see in Hebrews 1 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. In other words, Jesus Christ is also God, as in part of the Trinity. This is very important, and I've said this over and over again, and will for as long as I have breath. It is vital that we correctly identify and understand who Jesus Christ is. Absolutely essential. There are many who want to say, well, he is a good teacher or a good prophet, or I believed he existed to teach and demonstrate right behavior, but do not believe that he is actually God. That is a serious error. Jesus Christ is God. And our salvation, our knowledge, and our faith is based on this. At the same time, the one that we normally forget about the Holy Spirit, or perhaps sometimes praise more highly than we ought to, as in exclude the others for the Holy Spirit, is also called God. Acts 5, 3-4 says the following, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? We'll skip a few words there, and it says at the end in verse 4, you have not lied to man, but to God. And we see the early church telling people that lying to the Holy Spirit is equivalent to lying to God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. These are foundational and important truths about the Holy Spirit. They are three, but they are, in fact, one. They function as one God. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God. They have certain things that they do and certain ways that they act. Now, let me talk about one thing that's very difficult in our society. 
And I'll try very hard not to get off track too much. I have here in my notes, there is a relational subordination within the Trinity. A relational subordination in the Trinity. All three parts of the Godhead have the same divine nature and attributes, as I said. They're omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful. They're all those things. And there is no lesser God. We do not and cannot rank them, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in a rank order. It doesn't work that way because they are each God equally. They are three co-equal parts. This is where the examples of having ice and water and eggs starts to really fall apart because it's difficult for us to understand this. However, the three parts of the Godhead voluntarily submit to each other and stay within certain roles. They voluntarily submit and maintain certain roles. So Jesus Christ submits to the Father. John 20 and 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be to you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And so what we see here is that Jesus Christ has a role within the Godhead to do a certain task. The Father is exercising his authority to send the Son, but that does not place God the Father higher than God the Son. They are co-equal, but they are fulfilling different roles. This is very important. We see the same in the Holy Spirit. John 16 and 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so we see that the Holy Spirit is voluntarily submitting to the authority, to the role that Jesus Christ has. But again, let us be very careful. This does not mean God the Father is number one, Jesus is number two, and Holy Spirit is number three. Rather, they are completely equal and voluntarily submitting to one another to fulfill the purpose that they have co-equally. Now, we really, really struggle with this as individuals, don't we? This is really, really hard for us to understand how this actually works, but I think it's very important that we do. We know that this has been very difficult from the very beginning. What was the great lie that the serpent told Adam and Eve? You will be like God. You see, they wanted to be equal or like God so that they could have that complete control to do whatever they want to. And especially in our society, especially in the United States, we are told over and over again that if I somehow don't have complete control over myself and everything that I do, then I'm not really in charge and I'm somehow beneath someone else. And this is most certainly not the case. We see this over and over again when we discuss relationships between men and women. We see it over and over again when we discuss relationships between employer and employees. And we fail to understand that these divisions that we see, this lack of power, if you will, that we perceive, doesn't necessarily mean that one is better than the other. So let's talk about something that's controversial. Now, don't laugh. Am I better than my wife? 
I said not to laugh. The answer is no. Do I have, I believe by scripture, certain roles and duties that I am required to fulfill to my wife? Everyone shake your head this way, yes. Does she have certain roles and duties that she is required to fill to me? Yes. Does that mean that I am above her or that she is below me? No. This is the great mystery, if you will, of the Trinity and is exemplified by a right and proper marriage between two individuals that while I have certain roles and she has certain roles, it doesn't mean that I am better than her or she is better than me. It simply means that we are to work together for one common purpose, that is to love our God with all of our heart, strength, and mind. We will do that together, maintaining the roles that Christ has given to us. Our society sees that as making her subservient to me, and that is not the case. She is not less than me, never has been, never will be. But we really struggle with this. And I think sometimes we struggle so much that we transfer this issue to how we view God, and we somehow think that God is better than Jesus, and Jesus is better than the Holy Spirit. We see this with some people who say, well, I just like to read the words that are in red. These are Jesus' words. These are the important words in the scripture. Well, there's a really serious problem with that because I believe that the entire canon of scripture that I hold within my hand is the very word of God breathed out by him. And so the idea that somehow the words in red are more important than all the rest of them is completely insane. Nobody shook your heads. Okay. You with me? We cannot say that part of this scripture is more important than the others. We can say that it is equal because it is scripture. It is the very word of God. And it is my responsibility to know and to study all of it, not just one part that I think has more weight than the other. We see this coming down the path really hard and heavy in our society today because we do not understand how we can fulfill different roles and still be equal. I think generations before actually got this better than we do now, to be honest with you. We've gone so far the other direction that we have men who proclaim to be those called by God, who stand within our houses of political bodies and say, amen and a woman, trying to be fair. You can Google that one, put that one in the box of complete insanity. It's not even what that word means. I digress on that one. Maybe you saw just this week, there was a Spanish politician who was recently banned from Twitter. What could he have possibly said that would trigger their hate speech code? He said, and I quote, a man cannot get pregnant. A man has no womb or eggs. And Twitter said, no, that's hate speech. We can laugh at this, and to some degree we should, but this is a serious problem in our society. If our society is at such a point that we cannot say there is biologically a difference between a man and a woman, how will anyone ever even come close to understanding 
that Jesus Christ had to die for our sins, that he voluntarily submitted himself to what is humiliation, taking on my flesh and my form, living among me, and then conquering death, coming back to life, and sending the Holy Spirit. How will we ever teach that if people are confused about whether a man can get pregnant or not? We have fallen victim to a great lie that just because we have different roles and duties in our society, that that does not make us equal. I teach, but I am no better than my students. I have different roles, duties, and responsibilities. I am a husband, but that makes me no better than my children. But I have specific roles and duties and responsibilities. You get, I hope, the idea. This is important for us to understand because it has been modeled perfectly in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, since I said that word perfect, let me pause and tell you, I am not a perfect husband, a perfect preacher, a perfect father, or a perfect teacher. I fail at this. There are times that I try to be better than I am, that I take control of things that are not mine, that I do a poor job leading. Again, you get the idea. But the goal in my life is to do the best that I can to live within the roles that I have been assigned. We struggle greatly in our society when we think that we have anything less than absolute control. I don't know that this is as much of an issue for other societies, but it certainly is right now for us. We really struggle with this, but it's important that we understand God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as one unit have a plan and put it into motion That plan involves creating the world. It involves creating us. It involves loving us. It involves disciplining us. It involves knowing that we would sin. It involves having one of them, Jesus Christ, come to earth and physically be a sacrifice for me. It involves him conquering death, going next to the Father, seated at the right hand of God. It involves him being the intermediary, as the scripture I just read tells us, between me and God. That doesn't make him less. He is co-equal, but it makes his role different and unique. And it involves the Holy Spirit at the word of Jesus Christ being sent here to earth to dwell and live inside of me. And just because the Holy Spirit is living inside of me does not make him subservient in the traditional sense to God. And so we ought to think and remember to ourselves, if the Holy Spirit is equal with God, guess who's living inside of me? God. Now that ought to make us stand up and pay attention. Let me try and conclude with this. And hopefully you'll follow. The Father, the role that the Father plays is the ultimate source or cause or initiator of the universe. Of the universe. Let me just read a couple of verses to support some of this. I'm going to go a little too quick uh, to read all of them. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit were involved in the very foundation of the world. In fact, we see that back in Genesis. What was hovering upon the darkness of the earth? The Spirit of God. 
The light was there before the sun was created. Who is the light? Jesus Christ. All three were there and involved in creation, but they did it at the order of the Father. But that does not make one better than the other. We see the importance of salvation. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God. The first part is what I want you to focus on. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him. It does not mean that Jesus Christ is less than God. It means that God the Father, in his positional authority, told Jesus when it was time to come down and give us a revelation. And will tell Jesus Christ again when to come back and end it all. We can go on. We can talk about salvation. We can talk about the works that Jesus did. Let me just read that one real quick. John 14. John 14 and 10, I believe. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. The same Spirit and Father that dwelled in Jesus Christ dwells in us as well. The Son is the agent through which the Father creates, maintains the universe, gives revelation, and gives salvation. So God the Father is the source and the cause. God the Son, Jesus Christ, is the agent by which we receive these things. And the Holy Spirit is the means by which the Father and Jesus Christ act in us. They have three distinct roles. And so we do not serve three individual God, gods. They are three in one. There is one God who fulfills in three purposes, who are co-equal with each other, who always work together for the good. It is an example of how we should live as husbands and wives. It is examples of how we should live as a community of believers. It is an example of how we should run our church. We all have different roles, different things that we are to do, but we all should be striving and going for the exact same purpose. We must understand this and value it because the world does not. As was abundantly clear by the confusion over many things in our society at the moment. This is vitally important. As I said, this is really just a surface level, right? You really don't under, you may walk away thinking you understand this, but as I said, with the whole two-dimensional, three-dimensional thing, I don't think we really do. We have to walk away and go, okay, I'm going to live into this because I know it's true because the scripture tells me it is. I don't fully understand it because our minds cannot comprehend such things. But I'm going to believe it. I'm going to trust it. And I'm going to use it as an example for how I should live and how I should spend my relationships. I want to close with this because we're taking communion today. I want to read Hebrews. Turn with me there if you don't mind. Hebrews chapter 9. 
And I want to read a few verses. Chapter 9 of Hebrews, beginning with verse 11. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. I'm going to try and give special emphasis by uh, voice, if you will, as I read. But I want you to keep in mind what I just said. And specifically, I want you to look for and see the role of all three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, because it's expressly explained in this chapter. And it is why and what we celebrate when we take communion. So Hebrew chapter 9, beginning with verse 11, reads as follows. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through whom the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effort only at death since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used for worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with those rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
That's a long read and complicated, and I will not be able to explain all of it in the remaining time that we have. But understand and see the beauty of what is happening here. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were co-creators and collaborators in creating the world. Sin entered that world when man wanted to be co-equal with God. The world was punished, death entered the world, and there was a separation between God and us. We cannot be around God. God cannot be around us because we are sinners and he is completely without sin. He is holy, separated, apart from us. God knew that this was going to happen. And in his great plan, he foreordained a method for us to no longer have to be under this curse. Now, for many years, it was done by ritual. And that's part of what the Hebrew letter is talking about. There was a high priest who would sacrifice an animal or mix it with ashes of a burned animal or different varieties of sacrifice. And we talked about this recently. They would go in annually and they would sprinkle the place where God lived, the Holy of Holies, inside the tent, the moving tabernacle to purify. And that would temporarily kind of work. But it was never meant to last, and it was only a picture of what was coming. And what was coming was when Jesus Christ, one of the parts of the Godhead, would be sent to earth, who would lay aside part of who he is and take on part of who we are. That he would be both God and man, that he would live a life on this earth for around 33 years, and then he would be the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate blood sacrifice that is done once and for all. Why? Because he is perfect. And when we put our faith in that sacrifice, we have the blood, if you will, applied to our lives, and we are then saved and can have communication with God, and the Holy Spirit enters us. Do we see when we understand the beauty of these three parts of God, how they work and collaborate together to achieve a purpose? And that purpose is that I might know Him. That's what it's about. God isn't some far-off person who's throwing lightning bolts and angry at society. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit loved you individually enough that they sent one of them to earth to die. And they sent the other one to live inside those who have faith in the one who came. That is the exact opposite of what so many people think about God. God the... God will live inside of us. He wants to know us. He loves us. He sent his son to die for us. And the son voluntarily came and was obedient even unto death, the scripture tells us. Even when Christ in his body said, if this cup would pass from me, but nevertheless, let your will be done. It's a beautiful image of exactly how we should live toward each other. It's a beautiful image of how we should live to God. And it is what we celebrate and what we commemorate when we remember the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body. And we have communion. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, a new covenant, a new agreement made possible by his sacrificial death for us. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded 
for you. And without the shedding of it, there is no forgiveness of sins. If Jesus Christ isn't God, co-equal Godhead, then his sacrifice, if it did anything at all, would be temporary. This is what the scriptures tell us. It had to be over and over and over again. Because every year the priest had to go in and offer the sacrifice again because it wouldn't last, because it couldn't. So Jesus Christ had to be God. He had to be literally sacrificed, actually dead. He had to be buried for three days, and he had to rise again, or all of this is completely void and null and of no effect. So understanding who Jesus is, that he is as much God as God the Father, and the Holy Spirit is as much God as Jesus and the Father, is vital to our faith and is getting into the deep. Because these are hard things to understand. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Because as we try, we see the beauty that's wrapped up inside of these. So as we take communion today, I want us to think about this. I want you to think about what it is that we're actually doing when we pass the cup that represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled for us. As we pass the bread that represents the broken body that was broken for us. That Jesus Christ, not lower than God the Father, but co-equal, was willing to fulfill the role that he had for me. And as we do this, we should ask ourselves, what is the role that God is telling us to fulfill? Whether it be teacher, or coworker, or husband, or brother, or father, sister, cousin, nephew. We have certain duties and roles that we must and ought to fulfill in our lives. And we should look to Jesus Christ, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit to see how these things work together and draw our inspiration to take no offense to whatever role or position we are given, but to fulfill it to the best of our abilities. And when we have difficult to understand sections, we should try to study them. As the scriptures say, to show ourselves approved and worthy. Don't just gloss over it because it's difficult. Live into it. Search it out. Ask the Lord to reveal to your lives these truths and these things so that you can see the importance and meaning in them. We pray that you do the same as we take communion.